Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a virtual summit later this evening between China's Xi Jinping and President Biden, scheduled to last for three hours, and speak with Perry Link, who holds a chancellorial chair for innovative teaching across disciplines and is also a professor of comparative literature and foreign languages at the University of California, Riverside. He is one of the world's foremost experts on China's language, culture, and people, who in the 1990s edited the Tiananmen Papers, a collection of documents leaked by a high-level Chinese official that helped chronicle the events that led up to and followed the pro-reform student protests in June of 1989. He was blacklisted by the Chinese government in 1996, and we will discuss how much Xi's crackdown at home is in response to his fear that the Chinese people are not as docile as they were under Mao, and that the Communist Party has to impose more constraints to keep free expression and thought at bay. Then we'll look into growing concerns among the US and its European allies that Putin's massing of troops on Ukraine's borders and his gas wars with Eastern European countries, as well as tensions on the Belarus-Poland border, could mean he is planning a knockout blow to remove the Zelensky government in Kiev and replace it with a Kremlin-friendly puppet government. Joining us is Anders Asland, a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum, a professor at the Center for Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies at Georgetown University, and a former senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. A member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences, he has worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and serves as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine. And his books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It, and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. We will discuss his forthcoming article at Project Syndicate, The Kremlin's Perfect Storm in Eastern Europe. Then finally, we will speak with Congressman Ruben Gallego, who represents the 7th District in Arizona in the United States House of Representatives and is a member of the House Committee on Veterans Affairs and the House Armed Services Committee, where he serves as chairman of the Intelligence and Special Operations Subcommittee. A son of Hispanic immigrants, he was the first in his family to attend college, graduating from Harvard University with a degree in international relations. And while an undergrad, he enlisted as an infantryman in the Marine Corps Reserve and deployed to Iraq in 2005, where he and other members of Lima Company 3rd Battalion 25th Marine Regiment saw some of the fiercest fighting of the war. The co-author of the new book just out, They Called Us Lucky, The Life and Afterlife of the Iraq War's hardest-hit unit. We'll discuss how his experiences of the insurrection on January the 6th were a flashback to Iraq, as the frightened faces of young congressional staffers reminded him of the faces of the young Marines going into battle. And before we go to our first guest, while background briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can, help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. 
And joining us now is Perry Link, who holds the Chancellorial Chair for Innovative Teaching Across Disciplines and is also a Professor of Comparative Literature and Foreign Languages at the University of California at Riverside. He's one of the world's foremost experts on China's language, culture, and people. And in the 1990s, he edited the Tiananmen Papers, a collection of documents leaked by a high-level Chinese official that helped chronicle the events that led up to and followed the pro-reform student protests in June of 1989 and he was blacklisted by the Chinese government in 1996. Welcome to Background Briefing, Perry Link. Uh, My pleasure to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Perry. And this evening, after this broadcast is over, I think up until about 9 p.m., there's a three-hour meeting, virtual summit meeting, that President Xi and President Biden are having. I think it starts around 6 p.m. Eastern and finishes up around 9 p.m. So we won't have a readout. But what we're told is from White House officials that the U.S. is going to tell China that it must play by the rules of the road. My God, isn't that a waste of time? Uh, First of all, I doubt we will get a readout. We will get reports from the two governments on their take on what happened. The last time this kind of thing happened, the two reports were, you wouldn't know they were of the same meeting almost. So we'll just have to try to extrapolate, shall we say, on what they've actually said. But in terms of getting China to play by the rules of the road, I mean, that went out the window with the cancellation of the the TPP. And and then you've got basically Xi telling the world that, look, our system works better than democracies. Uh, We get things done. Well, look at what's happening in Washington, (laughs) particularly. Biden knows it more than anybody. Here he is twisting in the wind trying to get his stimulus packages through. Uh, So the sausage making from abroad must give Xi some ammunition, right? I'm sure it gives ammunition, yes. But your question about playing by the rules of the road being out the window has many kinds of examples from a long time ago. I mean, the most recent sting is the case in Hong Kong, where there was a very clear agreement with the UK and with the international world that there would be no change for 50 years, one country, two systems. And that has just utterly been put upside down. So the notion that you're going to get an understanding that will be durable is frankly naive. And I worry about this most with the the, the climate change agreements. Uh, All of those are by nature pledges, right? But what is the use of a pledge from uh, a Communist Party of China that is shown in so many spheres that its pledges aren't worth anything? I care a great deal about the environment, as I'm sure you and your listeners do. But the way to handle that with China is not to go on pledges. It has to be that we're doing this and you are doing that and you monitor each other as you go. And what counts is what is actually done, not as what, not as, as what is pledged. Right. So it's back to Reagan's adage of not trusting but verifying, you know. Yes. Right along. So is there, though, something happening with the Chinese economy here as as she rolls back the clock on this sort of pretty laissez-faire capitalism that's been going on since Deng Xiaoping? By the way, of course, recently she made this historic declaration placing him in the same pantheon as Mao and Deng Xiaoping, 
which would be the equivalent of Donald Trump putting his face on Mount Rushmore. So, <laughs> yes. pretty extraordinary move. But I spoke the other day with Ben Steele at the Council on Foreign Relations, and he thinks that the, the Chinese economy could be heading for a crash in a couple of years. Well, certainly parts of it look that way. The real estate bubble is very uh, at a cusp right now. This great company Evergrande that is so overborrowed and overproduced, uh, making thousands of buildings that aren't occupied at all, but just used as investments in a bubble economy, that is going to crash. Now, can crash mean a catastrophic collapse? Maybe. I think the the Chinese regime is doing what it can to make the make it a deflation of the Hindenburg blimp rather than a sudden crash. But that will come down. Um, in general, the boom that we've seen over the last two decades, in fact, three decades in the Chinese economy is uh, going to run out. Uh, for one thing, the Chinese government, the, the, the advances in uh, industrial technology for so long have been based on catching up with what the world already knows. And that catching up has pretty much reached a limit now so that further progress will depend on innovation. But there the rubber really hits the road because the one thing that's difficult in an authoritarian system is innovation, even in technical matters. So can the Chinese economy use innovation to keep going is one big barrier. Another is labor. See, so much of the boom had to do with a massive transfer of labor from the hinterland, from the villages of China, to the coasts and the cities where they did essentially what you and I would call sweatshop labor, uh, six or seven days a week, no vacation, no free press to correct, to to, to protect them, no free courts to protect them, and just working their butts off. So there's a boom. Of course there's a boom. But what's happening now is that the the wage levels in that boom economy uh, have gone up enough that, by comparison, Vietnam and other places uh, are better places for international capitalism to go. And there's no more, not no more, but the amount of what Marx would call exploitable labor, has diminished. Uh, so these larger forces are going to have to have an effect on the growth of the economy for sure. And that's why I think we see Xi Jinping turning away from just growth for its own sake as a goal and looking at political goals, uh, control of the society, control of, of everything, including the international world, as far as he can. Mm. Well, apparently this evening, Biden and Xi will be talking, obviously, about Taiwan. And if there's any military move that's similar, I think, to what's happening now with Putin and Ukraine and the possibility of a military move there, the blowback would be enormous, wouldn't it? And I wonder whether he would be reckless enough to try something militarily with Taiwan. Yeah. I can't get inside of his mind, but I think you're right that it's that's the question. How far does he dare to go at the risk of what? I think it's important to realize, and many in the West don't, that his reasons for pushing uh, in Hong Kong, in uh, Xinjiang, and now threatening Taiwan are not 
international expansion goals per se. They are domestic goals. He wants to appear as a domestic hero who has brought pride to a country that in the official view has been humiliated by the West. And this is a way to bolster his own power inside China. So he has to look good. Now, if you can take Taiwan back (laughs) by means fair or foul, then your image as a domestic hero has got a lot of room to grow. But if you try and it doesn't work, then you have paid a big price as well. So that that you just mentioned it yourself, that calculation of can I make it happen and what are the costs if I do and what are the costs if I don't are clearly on his mind. Whether it would create a huge blowback in the world, I'm not sure because there has not been a very big blowback about Hong Kong. Hong Kong, one of the most thriving commercial and trade cities in the world, uh, and with an economy that I think ranks something like 25th or 30th in the world among countries. I mean, it's it's a huge place, has been knuckled under, and there has not been a huge blowback. There's been blowback about the repression of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, but if it truly is a genocide, which our Secretary of State, Mr. Blinken, calls it, even there, I wouldn't say the blowback has been huge, So I'm not optimistic that the world would immediately pounce and an invasion of Taiwan would not be successful. It could be, I'm afraid. But just in the last couple of minutes, uh, Perry Link, what are the chances of uh, blowback within the country itself, even though he's cracking down at every level in terms of press and repression and social media and the ubiquitous surveillance that they've developed? Uh, You get these stories like the Peng Shui the tennis star, she uh, made an accusation over social media that a former vice premier, Zhang Gaoli, coerced her into sex and that they had had previously had an affair. And now she has not been heard of in public since she made that accusation online right. on the right. 2nd of November. And then, and then, of course, there's the story of of the health workers in these lockdowns, COVID lockdowns, going into a woman's house and killing a corgi with a crowbar and taking it away (laughs) in a yellow plastic bag, which has upset a lot of people in social media. And, of course, they keep censoring these things. So you get the impression that there may not be any organized resistance to repression in China, but there is resistance. And, and of course, you know, ever since Tiananmen, they pretty much killed off the possibility of democracy. Well, they killed off the possibility of explicit on-the-streets protests. That's what the 1989 massacre achieved, and it's still in place, that you'd better not cross us in public or else, and this is what can happen. But you're quite right that under the surface, there is a bubbling, what word to use, discontent, at least, over a bunch of range of issues. And here is the main reason why when... Xi Jinping wants to put himself on the Mount Rushmore of Chinese communist history, uh, he's going to have a tough time doing that because the society that Mao ruled over was much more docile, ignorant, repressed uh, than the one that exists today. 
I mean, for better or for worse, the, the Internet is there, and people do get ideas spreading, and opinions are much livelier on a bunch of, of different topics. Uh, we could talk a lot about the Peng Shui and the Me Too possibilities right there. There's, there's a lot of potential there for uh, unrest from below. And Xi Jinping, actually Xi Jinping knows it. The reason we know that he knows it is that he spends so much time and energy and money uh, in repressive apparatus. Uh, about 10 years ago, Chinese dissidents started noticing the fact that the, the domestic repression apparatus, they call, it's called the, the Wei One, the Maintaining Stability Budget, was bigger than the national defense budget. Wow. <laughs> Why would he do that? Why right. would he do he does that because he, he does that because he knows that the discontent underneath and the possibilities of more discontent underneath are considerable. Well Perry Link, I thank you so much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Perry Link, who holds the Chancellorial Chair for Innovative Teaching across disciplines and is also a professor of comparative literature and foreign languages at the University of California, Riverside, and is one of the world's foremost experts on China's language, culture, and people. And in the 1990s, he edited the Tiananmen Papers, a collection of documents leaked by a high-level Chinese official that helped chronicle the events that led up to and followed the pro-reform student protests of June of 1989, and he was blacklisted by the Chinese government in 1996. We can take a brief station break and back looking into the growing concerns among the U.S. and its European allies that Putin's massing of troops on Ukraine's borders could be a prelude to a knockout blow to remove the Zelensky government and replace it with a Kremlin-friendly puppet government. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Anders Asland, a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum and a professor of the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies at Georgetown University and a former senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, a member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences. He worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and served as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine. And his books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. And he has a forthcoming article at Project Syndicate, The Kremlin's Perfect Storm in Eastern Europe. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anders Asland. Thank you very much, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, in your forthcoming article at Project Syndicate, you say that the Kremlin is instigating a perfect storm in Eastern Europe as the winter is approaching. This storm has many components. It's a gas war against Central and Eastern Europe a migrant war by Belarus against Poland, Lithuania, and Latvia, a Russian military mobilization around Ukraine, and Russian agitation for a possible Serb Republic secession in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So is that how Putin operates um, (laughs) on many different fronts uh, simultaneously? And I guess at this point, everybody's guessing the uh, 
the head of the CIA, Ambassador Burns, went over to Russia last week and had a phone conversation with Putin. Putin's assuring everybody that nothing is happening, but the overheads, the satellites indicate otherwise, do they not? Indeed. Yes, I think this is how Putin operates. And it's an old Russian imperial style. Uh, you know, here in Washington, people normally say, what is our interest? Uh, interest is discussed in singular. In Moscow, Paris and London, interests are discussed in plural. And in the same way, they keep many balls in the air at the same time. It's not a question of one war only. It's a number of uh, uh, different hybrid wars that are being pursued at the, at the same time. So we should not look up on the Belarusian uh, uh, migrant drama and the Russian uh, gas war as uh, separate issues, but rather as uh, a couple of fronts in a big hybrid uh, war. And uh, I think that Putin operates like this in a very traditional fashion. He throws everything up. And then he sees, where is the resistance the least? This is where I hit hard. And why do you think he's doing it? My understanding is that, in general, the Russian people, particularly the young Russians, are just getting tired of him. And I believe the recent elections, the real results were pretty damning. I think something, what was about 12% actually voted for him, as opposed to whatever the official number they gave, some huge number. So is that what's motivating him to, to, to do a little patriotic move here to rile up? Because he's obviously annexing Crimea was very popular for him. So is that what he's trying to do? Yeah, he's trying to mobilize uh, the national sentiment in order to justify greater repression since he cannot uh, uh, get more uh, public support. And the Duma elections in September were really a big blow to Putin, and this is not uh, properly understand how big a blow it is. As you said, uh, Putin, uh, uh, well, the participation in the Duma elections was uh, in real terms only 38%, and uh, about 32% of those voted for Putin's part, United uh, Russia. So this means 32% times 38% is only 12%. And given that it was massive pressure on the whole population and a lot of uh, uh, financial incentives also, if you uh, voted, perhaps only one third of his 12% actually wanted to vote for Putin. So his legitimacy is gone. What you do in such a situation? You do two things. You increase repression and you instigate uh, uh, problems abroad in order to uh, justify your uh, repression at home. And I think this is how we should uh, uh, see the whole thing. And the better the result of the foreign aggression, uh, the better it is uh, for Putin than his uh, uh, tough play, uh, both at home and abroad, uh, seems more justified. And in Ukraine itself, it's not without its own problems, right? The leadership of uh, Zelensky is pretty shaky. His numbers are way down, like Putin's, I guess. And he was exposed recently in the Pandora Papers of having, what, something like $40 million stashed abroad from this terrible oligarch who ripped off, had a, a big bank, a private bank, and ripped off, what, the state and depositors in Ukraine of, what, $5 billion or something? 
Indeed. So, both, uh, as you mentioned, the Pandora Papers really revealed uh, President Zelensky. So, in September, in several opinion polls, which are very good in Ukraine, uh, about uh, he had about uh, 35 percent, 33 percent support, and then it fell quickly the next month to 25 percent, and now in uh, early um, November, it's down to 21 percent. So all of a sudden, uh, Ukrainian politics, which was completely dominated by uh, Zelensky for two and a half uh, years because of his uh, great victory in uh, 2019 of 73% in the presidential election runoff, is uh, now looks completely open. And the question is rather who will come up? Uh, the old politicians uh, who are ranked in the uh, opinion polls for president look very old, not in terms of age, but uh, that they seem obsolete and all are discredited in corruption. But so is Zelensky also. So all of a sudden, Ukrainian politics look looks open. And again, I'm speaking with Anders Aslan, who is a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum, a professor at the Center for Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies at Georgetown University and a former senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and a member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences. He worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and served as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine and his books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy and he has a forthcoming article at Project Syndicate the Kremlin's perfect storm in Eastern Europe. So if Putin were to make a military move in eastern Ukraine, where he's massing troops on the border, as well as in Crimea as well, where the similar mobilization is taking place, it certainly wouldn't do him any good with his need to get the Nord Stream 2 pipeline finally hooked up. It's close to being completed, and the U.S. is against it. But wouldn't uh, the, the Germans basically be forced and the rest of the Europeans forced not to accept gas from Russia? I mean, your article points out that Gazprom, the Russian monopoly, has a lot of leverage over the Europeans and the West Europeans too because that's the storage capacity, believe it or not, is controlled and owned by Gazprom. And their storage is full in their countries, but in Western Europe it's pretty empty. And the Europeans can have access to American liquid natural gas, but I don't imagine it's ready in the quantities that are needed. So why would he do an aggressive move now that would alarm the West and probably kill off his Nord Stream 2 pipeline? Well, uh, if he would do it, that is a hard attack on Ukraine. It is because he thinks that it's possible to do it now. But it's easier to do it now than later. And uh, for Putin, Ukraine is really the key of the empire. Uh, so uh, he wants to be uh, the gatherer of Russian lands. And he considers uh, Ukraine as a part of Russia, as uh, he has said repeatedly. And he, don't think, he doesn't think that uh, Ukrainians uh, uh, comprise a, a nation. But um, at the same time, what we are seeing now uh, in this year, first in April, there was a big mobilization of about 100,000 Russian troops with a lot of heavy equipment around Ukraine. 
when some of the troops left, but it seems that virtually all the equipment stayed. And then in September, we saw a massive uh, uh, Russian um, military maneuver, uh, Zapad uh, 21, West 21, which is being carried out uh, in September each fourth year, and which is all with a big dramatic thing, and probably 200,000 soldiers participate in that uh, throughout uh, Western Russia. But now it's not a maneuver, it's not a particular uh, reason. And uh, once again, we are seeing about, uh, that is the Western intelligence uh, sees about 100,000 uh, Russian troops around uh, Ukraine and a lot of special uh, forces uh, and uh, a lot of uh, tanks that seem re ready uh, to move. And this time, unlike in uh, April and September, uh, the Russian military are trying to hide, uh, which uh, suggests that uh, this time they are serious. But it's very much like this, um, uh, the boy who uh, cried wolf too often. Uh, we have seen this time and time again. So uh, Putin is sort of uh, pushing us to say this is normal. And then all of a sudden uh, something uh, happens. And uh, clearly the U.S. has very strong, strong suspicions uh, about it. And it's also remarkable that the U.K. during the weekend declared that they are sending 600 special forces to Ukraine ready to fight. It's the first time we are seeing uh, NATO country uh, actually sending fighting troops uh, to, to Ukraine. The U.S. has uh, 400 military instructors in uh, Western Ukraine that seem to be very, very effective, but they are not at all in uh, Eastern Ukraine or close um, to the front. And even the French and German Minister of Foreign Affairs today uh, surprised by making strong statement against Russian aggression in favor of uh, uh, Ukraine's territorial in integrity and uh, also praising uh, Ukraine's uh, peaceful uh, policies. So this was quite a change. And clearly all of these four uh, powers, uh, the, the US, uh, the UK, France and Germany are really worried about what their intelligence are reporting around Ukraine. But could Putin hold Ukraine? I mean, I can't imagine he's going to invade the entire country, not with 100,000 troops. But surely, whatever he does, he can't occupy that country. They'd be bogged down in guerrilla warfare. What's happened since uh, Putin came to power and since he's been trying to uh, recapture or reform the Soviet Union... The one thing that apparently existed throughout the Soviet times was that there was a kind of fraternity between the Ukrainians and the Russians. Uh, they didn't hate each other, but now they do. At least the Ukrainians hate the Russians, and I don't know, you know whether the Russian people are going to be very happy about body bags coming home. Indeed. So uh, the Ukrainian armed forces today are about 250,000, and they are... Uh, they have been in war. They, they are uh, quite uh, 
uh, tough uh, uh, troops. And uh, as you say, they have a strong national uh, commitment. Say that it's about 20% of the uh, Ukrainians now who are pro-Russian. There is still such a group, but it's not close to half uh, as it uh, was at uh, times before, because uh, Putin has really alienated by and large uh, uh, the Russian population. It doesn't really matter if you speak Russian or Ukrainian in Ukraine today. Uh, most Russian speakers in Ukraine identify themselves with a, a Ukrainian nation. So how it would make sense, uh, uh, as people are speculating, it is that uh, the Russia would simply use massive uh, uh, armed forces to kill as many Ukrainian soldiers as possible and force the Ukrainian government either to resign for a more pro-Russian government or to to give in in a humiliating peace settlement. So the general idea is not that it's about taking land this time, but rather a bomb with from air and with uh, uh, heavy artillery. But again, you're still looking at it long term. Is it going to work? I mean, a defeat and even putting in a puppet government. We saw that before. And, you know, that led to the Maidan. So I don't see how long term it could work. But do you think there's a chance that Putin could pull it off? I don't really think so. But that doesn't mean that he wouldn't try. So uh, clearly all these Western uh, powers are seriously worried, in particular the US. And uh, I think it was very important uh, uh, last week on the 10th of November, uh, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Dmitry Kuleba of Ukraine, was here and had a long meeting with Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and there was a bunch of other ministers here at the same time. And they signed off a charter on strategic partnership, which is very tough. The specific points in it says that Ukraine is entitled to join NATO, that the US putting that position firm, and it calls troops in uh, Donbass, Russian-led troops, no nonsense about uh, uh, separatist uh, troops or so. They are clearly called Russian troops. So while this uh, charter uh, is supposed to last for a decade or so, it's not uh, very clear on what specific uh, the U.S. uh, will do. It is a very firm support for Ukraine's uh, security and also the kind of level here in, uh, this year, uh, President Biden invited uh, President Zelensky on the 1st of September for a substantial meeting. Uh, three uh, U.S. cabinet secretaries have visited uh, Ukraine uh, this year. And uh, uh, there is a lot of uh, uh, bilateral activity uh, go- going on. So the Biden administration is really showing that uh, it sees Ukraine as a priority, which has not been quite uh, clear or well understood before. But at the end of the day, it's probably going to drive Western Europe into wanting to not depend upon Gazprom and Nord Stream 2, but rather 
on U.S. liquid natural gas. I mean, I take it that they have the terminals now to take it, but there would be a lag. This is the middle of winter when people need gas. So is that the leverage that Putin has? And I mentioned, as your article points out, that the storage is all in the control of Gazprom in, in Western Europe, which is pretty extraordinary in itself. Uh, not all of the storage. It's about a quarter of the storage in Germany, Austria, and uh, the Netherlands uh, that is uh, owned by uh, Gazprom. But that is completely empty, while the rest of the storage is almost full, and they should have 95% of uh, the storage is uh, full now. So what is missing is the Gazprom storage. So uh, an obvious consequence of this should be that the European Union prohibits uh, Gazprom, and for that matter, other suppliers, from owning significant uh, storage within the, the European Union. And with uh, Nord Stream 2, my hope is that uh, the US will simply prohibit its usage, which it can do by sanctioning Nord Stream 2 AG, the company that uh, uh, runs and owns uh, the pipeline. And uh, if you're not allowed to operate in uh, US dollars, you can't operate uh, a big international energy uh, company. So this uh, would uh, uh, sort it out. And either uh, President Biden does it himself now, which he can, or uh, the U.S. Congress will probably um, get it done in the annual uh, must-pass uh, defense bill that is uh, usually adopted uh, late in uh, in December. So I think that Nord Stream 2 is close uh, uh, to, uh, to be uh, uh, ended, while that is not the, the, the general view. And uh, obviously, uh, Europe needs to th uh, reconsider its uh, energy policy after this, it cannot allow itself to be so dependent on uh, uh, one supplier. Uh, Gazprom provides about 40% of uh, uh, EU gas uh, imports. And uh, uh, we saw something similar in 2009. After Gazprom had uh, cut off uh, supplies to 16 European countries for two weeks in January 2009, half a year later, the EU third energy package with unbundling and uh, uh, marketization of the gas sector uh, came came through. Unfortunately, that has not been sufficiently watched. The Competition uh, Authority of the European Commission should have been applied much tougher against Gazprom as it has been against the, the US high-tech companies. And you wonder, what is this? Uh, the European Commission sues uh, uh, Google, but not Gazprom. That is puzzling. But I thank you for joining us, Anders Aslan. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Anders Asland, who is a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum, a professor at the Center for Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies at Georgetown University, and a former senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, a member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences. He worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and served as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine. And his books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It, and Russia's Crony Capitalism, the Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. And he has a forthcoming article at Project Syndicate, The Kremlin's Perfect Storm in Eastern Europe.
We're going to take a brief station break. We're back speaking with Congressman Ruben Gallego about his new book just out. They called us lucky, the life and afterlife of the Iraq War's hardest hit unit and how his experiences of the insurrection on January the 6th were a flashback to Iraq as the frightened faces of young congressional staffers reminded him of the faces of the young Marines going into battle. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Congressman Ruben Gallego, who represents the 7th District in Arizona in the United States House of Representatives and is a member of the House Committee on Veterans Affairs and the House Armed Services Committee, where he serves as the chairman of the Intelligence and Special Operations Subcommittee. A son of Hispanic immigrants, he was the first in his family to attend college, graduating from Harvard University with a degree in international relations. While an undergrad, he enlisted as an infantryman in the Marine Corps Reserve and deployed to Iraq in 2005, where he and other members of Lima Company's 3rd Battalion, 25th Marine Regiment, saw some of the fiercest fighting of the war. And he is the co-author of a new book just out, They Called Us Lucky, The Life and Afterlife of the Iraq War's Hardest Hit Unit. Welcome to Background Briefing, Congressman Ruben Gallego. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And we just observed uh, Veterans Day, and the book makes it clear that veterans like you and your fellow Marines carry the burden with you to this day. But let's begin with what happened to you on January the 6th when you were about to deliver an important speech to rebut the Republican claim, the bogus claim that Biden didn't win Arizona. And then all hell broke loose. And there you found yourself sort of resorting to your Marine training to get your fellow Congress uh, members putting on their gas masks. So walk us through that momentous event. Well, look, you know, I have never really had to rely on a lot of the skills and, and just instinct that I learned in the Marine Corps up until that moment. And um, really what really tipped me off was the fact that there was just it was just so chaotic. And seeing all these, the faces of really scared people, especially scared young men and women, the young staffers that were on the floor, it reminded me a lot of what I saw in combat and, and dealing with men in combat, especially the first time I've had combat, um, how scared they are. And I realized that I may not be in a war zone, but this is this is pretty close to it. And the same, same rules apply. You need to keep your momentum. You need to keep your cool. You need to be organized. You need to have leadership. Uh, and if all that doesn't happen, you're going to have absolute chaos and pandemonium. And, and I didn't know exactly what's going to happen. I didn't know if they were going to evacuate us right away or, or if they're, if these people were going to be able to break through. And if they were going to be able to break through, then we're going to have to be ready to fight. And you can't fight when people are running around and there's no discipline, there's no leadership. So that's where it came from. That's where my instinct basically came from to, 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 to do what I did that day. So how do you feel about these efforts to rewrite history so soon where former President Trump is talking about uh, this love fest uh, on uh, the only violence he attributes to Antifa and all of this effort to turn these insurgents uh, who you could, I think you can classify as traitors, into martyrs Absolutely. and heroes? Well, if 
he knows that if we allow the the traitors and insurrectionists to to actually be labeled as that, that he also becomes complicit in it. Uh, so the best thing that he can do, as well as with the Republicans, they want to change the narrative, right? But in fact, they are traitors. They're traitors to this country. They couldn't stand the fact that there was a free and fair election and that and that they had to abide by it. You know, like in the past, many of us had to, especially when elections didn't go our way. Um, and I'm very, dis- I'm not surprised by him, but I'm I'm very su- not, I'm I'm very disappointed, but I'm surprised by a lot of the Republicans that I've known that are basically embracing that. Um, instead of trying to fight to save this democracy, they're more worried about making sure that he, you know, they keep currying favor with him. Uh, it is just a very low form of, of, of uh, actually, it's not even a low form, it's a non-existent patriotism uh, to the point where if, if it ever happens, and it could happen again, that I doubt that they will stand with us to preserve, uh, uh, to preserve democracy. Well, we only survived because Mike Pence, and as you point out in your, the chapter towards the end of your book about your experience on January the 6th, was you were able to still make your speech afterwards, and then Mike Pence finally declared Trump the winner. And we know that Trump, to this day, he just the other day suggested that somehow it was okay to threaten Mike Pence's life. I mean, that this is not going away. And when you couple that with comprehensive Republican attempts at voter suppression across the board, with gerrymandering, with changing, with the ability to change and recount, certify the vote, and the harassment of poll workers, there seems to be a real challenge here to American democracy, to the very foundation of our country. And so this is an aftermath of attacking the symbol of the building, the symbol of our democracy, but now the actual mechanics of our democracy are being attacked. Well, they've been doing this for a while, to to be honest, and it's just now that people are paying attention. I mean, they've been trying to disenfranchise voters for for decades. Um, they've been trying to make it more difficult uh, for uh, you know fair districts when it comes to gerrymandering or t- or uh, for accountability when it comes to campaign finance. So we just can't be surprised anymore. You know, there there are still good Republicans out there, but more and more the Republican Party as a whole. It doesn't believe in is starting to not believe in liberal democracy. It wants to be more focused on power. Um, that's a very dangerous mixture, especially when we have somebody like Donald Trump who's the head of it. But your story is such an American story because you, your mother's a Colombian, your father was a Mexican immigrant. They're both immigrants. You uh, grew up for some time in Michoacan, Mexico, and then mostly in Chicago. And then you had a really tough time when you, your father went to jail for drug possession and you and your family endured hardship. And then you got a scholarship to Harvard. And then towards the end of your graduation, 9-11 happened. And then you enlisted in the Marines and went to fight for your country. Uh, yeah. And so tell me about that particular decision. Were you motivated by what happened on 9-11? Well, actually, I, I joined before 9-11. Um, I joined uh, a year before 9-11, almost exactly a year before 9-11. Uh, and my motivation was actually more because I wanted to repay the country at being being the son of immigrants. Um, you know, I felt extremely horrible that my father, you know, in my opinion, had betrayed the country by, you know, becoming a drug dealer. I was internally ext- ext- grateful that I had gotten all these opportunities and I had some time to take off uh, because Harvard had kicked me out of school uh, for, for uh, not not great grades, mostly because I was just partying too much as an undergrad. Um, and so I decided to do what I always wanted to do was serve my country. I didn't want to be a long-term uh, deal. I didn't want to become an officer. I didn't want to uh, make this a career. I just wanted to do a small amount of time 
that I figured I could repay my country for. It was during peacetime. There was no, uh, you know, there was no overt uh, military action happening anywhere in the world. I wasn't naive. I knew that at some point something could happen. But, um, you know, I, I do want to be honest. Like I, I joined way before 9-11. And, and uh, you know, when 9-11 hit, of course, I was ready to go uh, and would, would have been happy to dissent. But it ends up that I didn't go to Afghanistan. Instead, I went to uh, Iraq five years later. And you chose to be an infantryman. You could have got a desk job, right? Yes, true. Look, I, I admit that um, it's a little odd for somebody from Harvard to be an infantry enlisted man. But I just felt that if I was going to join the military then I, and, and, and serve, then I would do it the, the best way possible with the, with the best organization possible, the Marine Corps. And it was a great uh, opportunity. And, and I felt that if I was going to sacrifice my time, I wanted to do it at a, from a, uh, as an infantryman rather than having a desk job. And um, maybe that was a mistake. But in, but, you know, in the long run, uh, you know, I think I was better for it. I think I, I served my, my country better as a Marine infantryman. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I certainly still think I got along better um, as an infantryman than I would have had a son with a desk job. And again, I'm speaking with Congressman Ruben Gallego, who represents the 7th District of Arizona in the United States House of Representatives and is a member of the House Committee on Veterans Affairs and the House Armed Services Committee, where he serves as chairman of the Intelligence and Special Operations Subcommittee. A son of Hispanic immigrants, he was the first in his family to attend college, graduating from Harvard University with a degree in international relations. And while an undergrad, he enlisted as an infantryman in the Marine Corps Reserve and was deployed to Iraq in 2005 where he and his other members of Lima Company, 3rd Battalion, 25th Marine Regiment, saw some of the fiercest fighting of that war. And he's co-author of a new book just out, They Called Us Lucky, The Life and Afterlife of the Iraq War's Hardest Hit Unit. And you were a member of Lima Company, the 3rd Battalion, 25th Marine Regiment, called Lucky Lima, because for the longest time you had no casualties. But then in Ambar province on May of 2005, the luck ran out. And did you know at the time that you were in Haditha, you were up against Al-Qaeda? We knew that we were up against Al-Qaeda and different insurgents. Um, and there was a mixture. There was, you know, Al-Qaeda. There was like um, local insurgents, you know, largely from Sunni clans. Um, there was international insurgents that were coming in. And there was just basically straight up mercenaries. We knew what we were dealing with. And we, we had seen the, the, the pace of attacks increase over the span of two months to the point where, you know, we only felt it was time before we find ourselves in a major clash. But May, when we got to that border, uh, when we got to the Syrian border, we knew that there was something that was going to happen just because it was too close to the Syrian border. We had them kind of pegged up against the, against the border. Uh, and, um, you know, we, we, we had that, uh, you know, running, gunning battle for about nine hours in, in uh, Ubaidi, uh, which ended up killing a couple of my uh, platoon members. And you lost your best friend, Jonathan Grant, to an IED, right? Yeah, soon after that, it's when I lost Jonathan Grant to an IED. And he survived the first two days of, of fighting where we lost other members. I was fighting in another block, uh, about two blocks away from him, fighting my own little war. And then, um, you know, I thought he actually had died in the ambush house, what we call Hell House. Uh, and luckily he had survived. But two days later, he, get, he got killed by an IED. Uh, that I unfortunately actually rolled over. And so part of the book is we explore the chance of the chances that you take in war and how luck actually either works against you or for you. 
and also just you know the 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 guilt that I, I carry from survivor's guilt from the fact that I survived and my best friends did it. But shortly thereafter, though, the, an IED destroyed one of the tracks, the Amtrak's vehicles that you were all in, and that was the single biggest loss of Marines since the 1983 Beirut bombing. Correct. Yeah, and so. After the, after those those two days where almost half my platoons either killed or wounded, we continued patrolling as a company, and we started losing more men to you know ambushes, shots, uh, you know, um, and then finally we have a massive IED strike that kills 16 Marines in one in one IED strike. And the sad part is, and I talk about this in the book, is that we all knew it was going to happen. And there's very few times in war that you know someone is going to die. And in the book, I explain how we all had a very vivid experience with that, with those roads. And we knew that those insurgents had, had been had been laying in wait for quite a while and that they were going to pop a, uh, an IED on us that could kill us all. And we warned our leadership and they still made us go out down that road. And I remember saying goodbye to, to men as we were loading up and we all were looking at each other, knowing that one of us or some of us weren't going to make it, weren't going to make it back, but we were powerless at this point. We were told to go, and so, of course, we did. But the Amtraks sound like, from what you've written, that they were more like targets than protective vehicles. They're, they're lightly armored. Yeah. Apparently, don't you get the exhaust from it? The exhaust pipe's <laughs> in the front, isn't it? The exhaust pipe is in the back where we sit. <laughs> oh, where you sit. That's what I mean, but it's not. Yeah, and then, um, but yeah, the, these things are designed to essentially carry men from the uh, a, you know, landing boat to the shore. So it's very light, very amphibious. Um, it can withstand uh, some um, you know, uh, heavy machine gun fire, but it won't be able to withstand much more than an RPG. Uh, but it was the only thing in the military, the US military, the mighty US military with all its you know, sophisticated gear that can move 16 Marines around fully combat loaded with some level of protection. Uh, and that's, and, and they sort of just knew about it and they knew its vulnerabilities and they, they created weapons specifically to kill them and kill as many of us as possible. And you lost 46 Marines, two Navy corpsmen, uh, the battalion yeah. lost them. Um, and the battalion, in, yeah. In your nine month activation. So how do you now, a lot of veterans, you know, are not too happy about the political authorities that, sent them off to war. Now you're in politics. You're a member of congressman. How right. does it look in retrospect? I mean, we've got Colin Powell warning President Bush at the time with the pottery bomb analogy. You know, if you right. break it, you own it. How do you feel about it in retrospect in terms of those people who led you to this war? I mean, now that I know more about how the government works, it, it pisses me off even more. The fact that we could have had the, the armored personnel carriers that would, would have kept most of us safe in the war and the fact that we didn't get it because of just bureaucracy both on the pentagon side just really significantly you know angers me uh knowing that there was politicians that could have even stepped in earlier than that by using whatever leverage they could have you know significantly angers me uh and you know it, it, i am mad at the, the the planners that got us into iraq and kept us in iraq the george bushes of the world the cheneys of the world the colin powell's of the world even god bless his soul but they don't, you know, time doesn't heal, you know, these incredibly horrible mistakes that they did, including Donald Rumsfeld, that killed, you know, potentially 4,000 or more Americans and hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, all because of, you know, hubris that was being 
you know, the hubris of the United States trying, thinking they could take over a country and hold a country in the middle of Asia. So just in the last couple of minutes, Congressman Ruben Gallego, you are on the House Armed Services Committee as, and Chairman of the Intelligence and Special Operations Subcommittee. We just heard from the head of the British military, uh, General Nick Carter, Chief of the UK Defence Staff, saying that we know that there's a build-up of Russian troops on the Ukrainian border and that the head of the CIA, Ambassador Burns, uh, went dead at Moscow recently to talk to his counterparts and he had a phone conversation with Vladimir Putin. But now you've got the head of the British military warning that an accidental war with Russia is a greater threat than it was during the Cold War. Well, I certainly think that is a that is entirely a possibility. You have a very provocative government in, in uh, Putin who doesn't really understand doesn't really understand the footing in the world. The only thing they understand is is vis a vis their their who they're antagonistic against, and that's definitely the Western aligned world. Um, and they operate in a very strange manner using hybrid warfare. Uh, and at some point, uh, and little green men here and there, those little green men are a lot of Russians. Well, at some point, those little green men are going to cross the wrong line and meet some wrong people, and potentially hundreds or you know hundreds or thousands of them are going to die. Uh, and I don't know how the Russians will react on, on that. If you want to look at a good example during in Syria, uh, when they were given several warnings about that, about 300 mercenaries, Russian mercenaries, were killed in the span of about an hour by U.S. forces. Um, something like that could occur on the Ukraine border or in the Baltics. Uh, so there is, you know, major wars tend to start with miscalculation. Uh, and I could see that happening here. The best thing that we can do is have, you know, very strong deterrence to actually make them, you know, overcalculate to the point where they may not want to act. Uh, and, I, and I'm not a necessarily a person that says we have to st- stock every, you know, put as many men at the front. But, you know, being someone who has been in combat, you know, and and been able to now being the chairman of intelligence special operations, you know, these countries that are on the front line need to show how they can be, you know, be be strong and, and create a deterrence uh, to the point where it'll make, uh, you know, Russia think twice. Uh, but it's a very good situation. Look, you know, one of the things you, you you see in the book is how, you know, mistakes can create, you know, uh, very dangerous situations where men are, men are dying. Uh, and, you know, one thing I would say, you know, who, between Russia and everybody else and the United States, we have to remember that when we're all talking about war, it's not Putin and Biden that will go to war. It'll be an 18 or 19 year old boy from Moscow and an 18, 19 year old boy from, you know, Phoenix or from Chicago or from uh, New York. And we have to remember that and keep that in mind instead of just trying to you know, treat this as if it's just a giant game of risk. So just in closing, I recently spoke with a Marine veteran from Afghanistan, and he made the point that al-Qaeda attacked us on 9-11, killed 3,000 Americans. They came all the way from Afghanistan to kill us. And then we turned around and sent hundreds and thousands of our young men and women to this country, particularly in Afghanistan and Iraq too, by extension, to put our people in a situation where these people who want to kill us would never otherwise have been able to kill us. But <laughs> there we were, presenting ourselves on a plate. Does that make sense to you? It doesn't make sense to us, uh, to me, but it doesn't surprise me that, uh, you know, uh, they're showing that was certainly the argument of back in the day, if you guys remember, we need to fight them there so they don't fight us here, when in fact, by us being there, we actually encourage more of them to be there, right? Draw them all around the world. 
we had a very narrow focus at the beginning, get rid of Al-Qaeda uh, and, you know, and get Osama bin Laden. We got rid of Al-Qaeda and we got rid of Osama bin Laden, and yet we kept on going and trying to build a, a nation state that had never existed. Uh, and, and now we know it won't ever exist. You know, I think, you know, America's, you know, hubris for thinking they could rebuild, you know, the world in their, in their vision is what caused us to stay in places like Afghanistan um, and, you know, allows us to be more, more targeted. You know, it just doesn't make sense that we, if we, had we had, I mean, if you think about it this way, had we had better TSA, those 14 men would never have been able to take down, uh, you know, to take these two planes or three planes and take down the World Trade Center and attempt at the, um, uh, at the Pentagon. Uh, and that only costs probably less than a million dollars, you know, with better, with better, you know, t- technology. Next time uh, Al-Qaeda tries to strike us, they may try to do something similar, uh, but does it mean that we need to re- react with, you know, uh, the, the whole battalion of Marines to go after, you know, a $50 target, right? You know, that's just not the way the world works anymore in the sense that it's not the way how you react to it, because at the end of the day, you're only probably giving them more power by doing things like that. We should get our uh, justice. We should track down the people that do these kinds of things and make sure that they're brought to justice or, or meet their makers. But this idea that you know we need to rebuild nations in the eyes of the United States is, as, a, as, a, as a resort uh, to their attacks, I think, is long gone. Well, Congressman Ruben Gallego, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for your time. And again, I've been speaking with Congressman Ruben Gallego, who represents the 7th District of Arizona in the United States House of Representatives and is a member of the House Committee on Veterans Affairs and the House Armed Services Committee, where he serves as Chairman of the Intelligence and Special Operations Subcommittee. A son of Hispanic immigrants, he is the first in his family to attend college, graduating from Harvard University with a degree in international relations. While an undergrad, he listed as an infantryman in the Marine Corps Reserve and deployed to Iraq in 2005, where he and other members of Lima Company 3rd Battalion 25th Marine Regiment saw some of the fiercest fighting in the war. And he is the author of a new book just out, They Called Us Lucky, The Life and Afterlife of Iraq's War's Hardest Hit Unit. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Martin Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.